Hey everyone, great to be here with you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. And I have an ad, it's actually an ad for myself. Uh, it is to let you know that my new book is out. It's called Rest, Refocus, Recharge, A Guide for Optimizing Your Life, published by Harper Collins. Very, very excited about this. Took a long time to write and research and pull together. Um, it was super challenging, but I'm really happy with how where we landed on it. Basically, this is all came coming out of a place where when we did the ripple effect, it was great, but everyone would speak to me afterwards and be like, these ideas are awesome, but I'm just so busy, I don't have time. So what I wanted to do was to provide everyone with ideas for how to integrate these ideas about health, well-being, high performance into your life in a very, very easy, very, very um, tactical way that you can actually integrate. So for example, taking a couple of breaths to relax or to calm down if you're stressed, or what are some super healthy snacks that you can use in the middle of the day that are easy, cheap, and fast to make, or how do you take a great vacation uh, and completely disconnect? And then we grounded all of that in the latest science around neurophysiology and how the brain works to optimize creativity, learning, problem solving, and concentration. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're psyched to hear, learn more and to explore those ideas, I would be infinitely grateful if you wanted to pick up a copy of the book. It's available at Amazon in Canada and the States. Just search Greg Wells and Rest, Refocus, Recharge, and you'll find it. It's also on Indigo um, and all of the bookstores in Canada if you want to check that out. Uh, Neil Pasricha, the number one best-selling author of You Are Awesome, described it as a prescription for space in a world of noise. So really pleased to um, have had that little support moment from from Neil and he's been on the show if you want to check him out. So thanks for considering it. Really appreciate it. I'm really proud of the book. I know it's going to be super helpful for you. So if you want to pick up a copy, I'd greatly appreciate it. All right, let's get back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back. It's great to have you here again. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. Each week I deconstruct world-class excellence, health, well-being, high performance, and bring you interviews with people that I think are interesting and are leading the world in their research and practice around how to achieve our potential. And this week I'm really excited to introduce you to Jillian White. Actually, Jillian's been on the show before. We talked previously in my original podcast about cold immersion and inflammation back when Jill was doing her master's and now she has graduated from her PhD. She's now Dr. Jillian White. And in her doctoral research, she did incredible work on stress reactivity in children with cancer. And the reason why I wanted to bring Jill to you is that she's learned so much. She has built incredible expertise around a multidisciplinary approach to human health and well-being that involves neurophysiology, uh, which is brain function, basically, um, stress modulation, and how to, there's full on construction going outside, going on outside my office right now. So as I say, stress regulation, there's a drill going on outside, kind of funny, not really, but anyway, continuing on. Um, and then also not just about how neurophysiology interacts with stress regulation and behavior, but also how physical activity can modulate that. So it's a really interesting expertise that Jill has brought and developed. And so I wanted to share that with you because she's got some pretty cool insights into 
how to actually reach your potential. Jill was also on the Chimborazo expedition to Ecuador a couple years ago and successfully summited Chimborazo. So uh, she's also a world-class climber, expeditionist, adventurer, and has some expertise as well in ski racing and ski coaching. So overall, amazing athlete, incredible academic, brilliant, and really excited to bring you this conversation. So let's dive into it with the newly minted PhD grad, Dr. Jillian White. Hey, Jill, thanks for joining us. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Don't sound too excited. That's so the excited. typical that's the <laughs> typical former PhD student supervisor tone that just came across there in droves. Like, Jill, what's up? And you're like, hi, Greg. Hi, Greg. You again. <laughs> um, all right. So, Tell us about where you're at. Like, where where have you landed? You've just finished your PhD. How are you feeling about things? Like, what's going on? Well, um, true to form, I have a lot of things happening. Um, so I finished my PhD a month ago and thought that then I would have all this free time. But then I remembered that I already had seven other things happening. So um, I'm carrying on with uh, measurement, evaluation, and business intelligence for government agency, um, which is great, just a casual nine to five. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, writing my like five papers that come out of my PhD um, in my evenings and weekends and um, starting another research project off the side of my desk to launch um, May 1st. Um, And then, of course, all the self-care and um, mostly skiing (laughs) on weekends and thinking about skiing when I'm not... uh, actually at the hill. Yeah, right on. So lead us through, let's just talk briefly about your master's because that way people get an understanding of your background as a, as a physiologist and inflammation is huge these days as is like interest in cold and massage and all that sort of stuff. So where did you start with your research and what did you, where did your interest begin and, and what did you discover early on in, in, in your research life? Um, well, if we go all the way back, um, it was um, originally a, a research idea about how to um, improve recovery for alpine skiers. Um, so how do we, the question started with talking to the coaches of the Ontario ski team and asking, you know, if you had, if you have um, a research resource, what's kind of the top question that you would want to have answered? And they said, um, we need to keep our athletes healthy. So we kind of worked together to come up with um, this study about recovery to um, kind of maintain longevity through a training um, session, which is usually about eight runs, um, as well as training camp, which is usually between 10 days and two weeks. Um, and then I think you and I had a discussion about funding and uh, we're thinking that that study um, and the impact of that study would be roughly tens to fifties of people. Uh, yeah. So uh, we did do that as kind of a side project, but that steered me into this idea of kind of um, how do you maintain really high performance um, as an athlete, um, but also kind of continue to have uh, the training volume that often um, is imposed on athletes without having some kind of um, breakdown or injury. Um, So that led into my master's research around cold water immersion. looking at how if we could find kind of an optimal protocol um, for using cold water immersion or what people would call ice baths um, for sprinters so 
we uh, looked at four different protocols of cold, um, the theory being that cold reduces inflammation and inflammation is kind of the, um, the culprit in delayed onset muscle soreness and some of the kind of like fatigue elements um, that come along with high intensity exercise. The catch is, um, and I'm sure we'll get into this in more of like a meta kind of conversation that um, stress, uh, which exercise is a stressor, it's a physical stressor and a mental stressor depending on the type of activity. Um, but that stress is uh, fundamental to the adaptation um, that comes along with exercise. So um, on the one hand, if you reduce that stress, obviously you reduce any kind of negative effects of it, but without the stress, you also don't have the signal um, to adapt or grow. So from um, an athlete's perspective, um, you can be using cold baths, uh, but we're looking at how do you kind of tamp down that stress signal as far as um, being able to maximize recovery um, so that you speed how well you feel kind of the next day. Um, but always in the back of our mind was thinking like, how much does this actually impact their adaptation over the long run um, to kind of keep in mind what, what contexts um, do you want to be looking at using cold baths? When is it kind of optimal to be using them? And when might it be kind of uh, counter to what you're trying to do? Got it. So what did you find with regards to, well, actually lead us through the protocol that you made the athletes do, because obviously it was pretty, pretty hard. And what, what, what happened afterwards? How did they use the cold baths? Did any cold immersion protocol emerge as being optimal? And then we'll dive into whether or not you should actually use them. Sure. And this is like, classic um, researcher mentality of like coming up with something on paper um, and not actually experiencing it yourself. Um, so, so on right. paper, the plan is, is like, this isn't that bad. It was um, 12 bouts of 120 meter all out sprints. Um, each one was done on the three minutes. So if it took you 25 seconds um, to do the sprint, then you had the remainder of that three minutes as recovery. Um, I think I tested out the protocol when we were kind of piloting stuff and I think I got through six and was like, yeah, I think, I think it'll be fine. Uh, it was like extremely stressful, um, both mentally and physically and keep them like, especially in those last few bouts to keep them going at, um, a kind of a maximal exertion, 120 meters is far, uh, and 12 is a lot. So they would go through that and then come back down to the lab. They were randomized to one of five different, um, recovery conditions. So, um, four were ice baths. One was just sitting in a chair. So that was the control condition. Um, the ice baths were either 10 minutes or 30 minutes. Um, so they sat down, they were immersed up to just about their belly button. Um, and they were either 10 degrees or 20 degrees, which doesn't sound that cold. Um, 20 degrees is roughly like a cold pool. Um, mm -hmm. so it's still, it's still cold immersion. Um, and 10 degrees is actually very cold. So seven is where it hurts. So seven degrees registers pain. Um, keeping in mind that some of like, for one of the conditions, they had to be there 10 degrees for 30 minutes. Right. Um, so it's actually quite a long time to be in very cold water. Um, so they, they did um, each of those four ice bath protocols. So 10 minutes, um, 10 degrees, 10 minutes, 20 degrees, 30 minutes, 10 degrees or 30 minutes. 20 degrees, um, which was kind of, uh, we picked those temperatures and times to kind of run the, the span of what was being used in the literature because it was kind of all over the place. So we were trying to look at kind of the extremes of what had been used. 
And what did you find? Which temperature was optimal and what duration was optimal? Like what markers seemed to work or was it, you know, still not really, can't, can't really tell? Well, um, the one definite thing that we can say is that the exercise protocol was stressful. So we saw um, a significant increase in um, cytokines, which are kind of the signaling factors for inflammation. Mm -hmm. So inflammation is like very multifactorial. You can look at all kinds of different markers for it. Um, mm -hmm. Commonly, we look at cytokines um, because they signal um, the processes of inflammation. Um, and also for exercise, um, some cytokines are actually produced by skeletal muscles that are stressed. Um, so it's a good marker to use for post-exercise inflammation. Um, as far as what we found um, from the ice baths, we found that the, the baths that were 30 minutes were actually contributing to the inflammatory response. Just um, too long, like you're in the wa cold water for too long, it actually causes inflammation. It causes inflammation. So wow. um, inflammation can kind of, it can be a reaction from almost like most of your cell types, mm -hmm. um, skin being one of them. So um, if you immerse your skin in like that, that high surface area of your skin, of if you're thinking everything from like mid torso down to cold water, which is obviously stressful um, for 30 minutes, that ends up contributing to the inflammatory response, which was something that master student Jillian had not considered. Right. Um, <laughs> that when you're measuring inflammation at uh, the antecubital vein of your elbow, that it kind of just merges all of the inflammatory processes. But um, we also found that, so it, it actually went up with those ones, um, but with the 10 minute protocol, um, in the 10 degree water, so that cold water, um, that it seemed to speed inflammation um, or recovery of the inflammatory response, um, as well as uh, jump performance, which is obviously as an athlete, you probably care more about the jump performance. Right. So we know that inflammation is the signal for your body to adapt and get stronger, fitter, and all those sorts of things. Um, yet there is a short-term decrement in performance that comes with increased inflammation. So should we be using these modalities? Because I think massage therapy works in a similar way that cold does. In addition to like compression gear, like all of these sorts of modalities serve to try to get rid of inflammation, which makes you feel better in the short term, like your jump performance improves. But if we remove all these inflammatory markers, then maybe there's no signal to adapt. Do I have that right? And like, would you, would you use these? When would you use them? Like, what do you think people should do when it comes to like cold baths and um, compression gear, massage therapy? Because a lot of people listening to this podcast are triathletes and, and training for events where you know, basically we try to use as many anti-inflammatory modalities as you can as often as possible. So what, you know, in your expertise now, what would you put that into meta context for us? Well, um, yeah, you're right. So on the one hand, you need inflammation as that stimulus to, um, to adapt. So to, um, ready, your body basically goes, okay, this thing was really stressful. Um, it stressed, you know, our muscles or maybe our energy sources. Um, that means that we need to, um, basically build those things so that if we encounter this thing again, we're better equipped. So that's like kind of in like very gross layman's terms, essentially how training adaptations come to be um, and how inflammation is involved in those. Um, so if you're thinking about when to use them, why to use them, if to use them, then you need to consider actually what your priority is. So 
Um, if your priority is the training stimulus, then I would say probably don't use them. If your priority is um, I need to feel better tomorrow or um, I want to avoid um, injury in the next little bit, then that's probably when I would use them. So I'm not so concerned about building my capacity, but I'm concerned about maintaining my current capacity um, and staying healthy um, and feeling kind of better the next day. The other thing is I honestly do think that um, with massage therapy, with compression, with kind of all of these different modalities, and you see it in the literature, like there's like kind of responders and non-responders is what we right. would call it. Yeah. Um, I think there is a bit of an individual aspect to it. So I think um, we shouldn't discount uh, how we feel after. So if you do it and you're like, I, it really doesn't make me feel better. I don't know what all the rage is, but you know, massage therapy really makes me feel a lot better. Um, of course, there's like a subjective element to that, but you could kind of do a little test with like how sort of my muscles feel, um, <clears throat> how, how well do I feel like I'm performing in whatever activity I'm doing that day. You can do like almost like a little mini experiment on yourself. Um, but I have found certainly with like with the participants in that study, as well as um, other athletes that I've worked with, a lot of athletes really like it. They, um, they feel a lot better the next day. Mm -hmm. When I was ski racing, we used to do um, contrast water. So we would do hot colds. Um, and I don't know that it made like a huge difference for my muscles, but on like day 10 of a 14 or 16 day training camp, it like really made my energy levels change. Mm. So there's kind of a couple other elements to it that I would also consider. But um, if we're talking strictly related to like inflammation and um, the inflammatory impact that it can have in terms of like training response, then I would say if you're prioritizing training response, don't do it. If you're prioritizing um, feeling good and, uh, and kind of minimizing injury, then, then I would go, uh, I would use it. Okay, cool. Did you flood the lab? Only twice, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but don't tell my supervisor. He actually doesn't know. Right. I mean, still, you've still got like 300 liters of water and, <laughs> and a whole bunch of tubes. <laughs> of course, something's going to go wrong, right? <laughs> and you've never used them before. It's your first time trying to, I also, um, one of the other things that you didn't see, so maybe Greg Earmuffet, and this will just be for the listeners. Right. Um, was, uh, so they had given me, they had given me this cold bath for free. It was from iCool. And somehow I had connected with somebody who knew someone who knew someone who was like, you know, we've got a unit in California and we'll give it to you for free if you can make it work again. And, and it's like, this thing is like a high tech thing with like plumbing and electrical stuff and like a computer board. And I like have to turn my computer off and on if I have a technical issue. So they sent me this thing um, and there's like some broken pieces. So I'm, I'm using like a hammer a screwdriver and and like like in the lab on on saturdays just like wailing on this thing to try and bend different pieces back together and stuff um and then thankfully uh we had a lab tech engineer move in next door and i went to her and i would kind of work with her to figure out you know okay this seems to be working this doesn't seem to be working we take a picture from that send it back to the company who was in australia so they would get it overnight send me back information the next day and I would try that and we ultimately got it working again. But yeah, going at that thing with a hammer, I don't think <laughs> would have made you feel all that good about the, uh, 
choices in your master's student. That's okay. I've been deep inside of an MRI with a screwdriver before, so it happens. And so it's all good. I don't think you're supposed to take metal into MRIs. It's non-ferrous, so it was okay. I had to test it first. But um, so speaking about like flooding and stress, you then transitioned into your PhD, took the stress markers and your expertise in cytokines. And um, we, as we do, tend to then shift into exercise medicine and take what we've learned from sports and apply that to children with chronic diseases. Uh, and you developed some amazing expertise around stress reactivity and stress and modulation and all that sort of stuff. So tell us a little bit about the path and the, the project that you developed in your PhD work. Well, it was long. It was um, long. It was very long. Uh, originally, the intention was to kind of like do that sort of short transfer of um, looking at the inflammatory response um, that I had learned about in my master's through athletes um, and look at those same kind of um, processes as they relate to exercise in a group of um, pediatric cancer populations. So um, if you think about like, uh, well, I mean, all different types of cancers are treated with chemotherapies that impact um, blood cells. So white blood cells in particular, um, which um, are part of the inflammatory response. So cytokines will signal white blood cells to do um, different things that, uh, that relate to the inflammatory response. So um, you have this population that the treatments that they're, they're um, being, or sorry, the chemotherapy agents that they're being treated with impact inflammation directly. Um, they're also deconditioned because um, either side effects of treatment or direct um, kind of toxicities of treatment have, um, have caused physical deconditioning. So um, they also tend to be both less fit and less active, which you can imagine, you know, like you're a child going through chemotherapy, you're probably not going to make it to every gym class or, um, or soccer practice. So you kind of have a, a couple different factors happening where it became a really interesting population to consider um, what the inflammatory response to exercise might look like, how that might impact um, the recovery of their inflammatory signaling. So um, both cytokines and the responsiveness of white blood cells, which for them may actually help immune recovery, but mm -hmm. that was a bit of a speculation. Um, but the thinking going into designing a study for that, um, that led me to do work. So we did do a little bit of work around the actual um, what we call the pathophysiology of exercise intolerance. So um, what are the kind of the cellular limitations that are contributing to that deconditioning? Um, is it just that they've been on bed rest? Is, are there particular things about their muscles um, that would inform what kind of exercise they should be doing? Um, so we did, um, we did a small study with a group of bone marrow transplant recipients, um, but that work led me to volunteer with a camp for kids with cancer, Camp Uchigayas. Um, which led me into a much broader area. So we sat down with Uch and we thought, you know, you do recreational stuff in pediatric cancer. I'm trying to do recreational stuff in pediatric cancer, kind of specifically around um, exercise more so than, than recreation. Um, and in all honesty, I was thinking this would just be good for me to get participants and like connect with this group. Um, but then led me down this, this road of going to camp and seeing how there's a whole bunch of other factors that kind of go into um, 
I guess like the whole child or the whole patient um, and their experience after they've gone through treatment. So um, children who have been treated with cancer, they're like a very diverse range of, um, of kids. You have kids that have, um, they've had brain tumors and they may have had part of their brain literally removed because of the tumor. Um, they may have had cranial radiation, so radiation applied directly to their brain. That can kind of change some cognitive processes um, and some like learning abilities. You have kids that um, may have had a solid tumor, um, like a sarcoma or something like that, where they've had um, a limb amputation. Um, you have kids that may have had some ocular stuff. So, so they're really a really diverse range um, of you know, like different kind of physical and cognitive and emotional outcomes following treatment. Um, and you put them all together in this place that basically tells them, you know, we're gonna remove as many barriers as we can possibly think of to you participating in these physical things um, that, that you can kind of self-direct yourself into. We're gonna give you a, a whole range of activities from canoeing to water skiing, um, archery, high ropes, rock climbing, like kind of you name it, your, your typical sort of summer camp experience um, for this diverse range of, um, of bodies and, and interests really. And you watch how it's not just the physical, um, not just physical limitations, it's also not just physical abilities that plays a role in whether they're active and how they're active and how they recover. You see like all of these social elements, you see um, a lot of emotional elements of like self-esteem and confidence, um, which now we kind of understand as the concept of um, physical literacy. So not just competence in the physical skill itself, which you could put fitness into that, um, but their motivation to do it, um, how they feel about themselves doing it. They're kind of um, the social, elements of doing these things as a team or doing things together and problem solving to, together and overcoming things that they maybe didn't think they could do. Um, so after a couple summers at camp, I went, you know, the thing that changes the most, like I legitimately thought that like, I'm like, camp is just the best place in the world. It's magic. But having to boil that down into a word of like, how can camp actually affect health? is what I think we started to wonder. Mm -hmm. And is it, through, is it through the physical activity or is it through all of these other kind of social emotional um, experiences that they have um, of which physical activity is either kind of the context or maybe a vehicle for supporting those other things. Um, but how do we look at all of these things together? And so we started talking about resilience. Um, but because I'm a physiologist, you kept reminding me that I need to measure physiology. Um, so started looking at, can you use MRI to measure resilience? So can you use brain imaging to measure resilience? That took me down this whole rabbit hole into a field called psychoneuroimmunology, which you had suggested I maybe made that word up. It's actually a whole field, um, which basically, so the, the kind of components of it, psycho, psychology, neuro, neurology, or like brain um, biology, um, and then immunology. So that's the like inflammatory immune function side of things that, 
that then becomes really interesting for oncologists because um, infection and immune function is a really important aspect of um, recovery from pediatric cancer. So when I fell into that field, like all of these other areas opened up um, because I started to see that like there's this whole field that's actually been looking at what I was really interested in, which was how the psychology and biology and physiology, which was really my what the expertise that I was bringing to the table, all kind of fit together in the same person um, to impact recovery um, from in my case, or what I was interested in was pediatric cancer, but would, would apply to all, all kinds of different contexts. Very cool. And so lead us through like, what is, what is stress? Because we're all, we all experience stress. What is stress reactivity? And then from your perspective, what's resilience? Because what I want to get to is what did we learn that we can all apply to handle stress better in our lives. So let's start sort of with the basics, like from a psycho neuroimmunological perspective that everyone can understand, what is stress? What's stress reactivity? So, I mean, there's, there are a couple ways that you could answer what is stress. Um, the way that I kind of operationalized it was that stress is any kind of stimulus um, that could be real. So it could be real, like, you know, um, drought. Mm -hmm. um, it could be perceived like um, the uh, the psychological perception of stress that you feel public speaking. Um, it could be imagined. So it could be something that hasn't even happened yet that you're anticipating. Um, so like a negative reaction to let's say like your boss sets a meeting with you and you imagine all the different scenarios um, that, that that meeting might um, might be and you could feel stress from that so it could be real perceived um it could be psychological it could be physical but in all cases it exceeds the coping resources of the person so um that would be in the case of like physical those coping resources might be like you know how much water do you have um in a drought um or uh for the for the perceived or psychological ones that those might be more like um, psychological coping mechanisms. So it might be confidence. It might be your ability to reframe things positively. So optimism, um, it might be um, social support is considered a coping resource. Mm -hmm. So there's, um, there's kind of the two elements. One is like the stimulus uh, presents some kind of challenge. Two is the coping resources that you have are exceeded by that challenge. So that is and then, stress. So that's stress. And then what is stress reactivity? Stress, is that how we, so let's say you have the same stressor hits two different people and there's a different response from each individual. Like how does that work? So I think public speaking is generally the, the example that I use because most people are familiar with it and most people um, are familiar with the stress that it invokes. So mm -hmm. um, you could have two people, uh, you put them up, both up on stage, um, and the physiological or physiological and psychological responses to that particular stimulus, which it's the same for both people. They're both on stage, both have to give a speech. Well, let's assume they're both like they've had equal amount of time to prepare, et cetera. Um, so for all objective 
um, kind of aspects, they're the same, but their responses to that stimulus are different. So stress reactivity encompasses the, the stress hormone changes. So you have cortisol, um, you have catecholamines like adrenaline and noradrenaline um, that kind of govern that fight or flight response that we feel, um, which is another element of stress reactivity, the kind of like physiological arousal that you might experience. So um, that includes, you know, your heart rate going up. Um, you might start breathing a little bit more shallow. You might feel a little bit shaky in your muscles. That's because of um, an increase in uh, neuromuscular activation. Um, you might feel like you can't think really properly. That's because um, the way that, that those catecholamines interact with your brain makes you uh, focus, which is great but it's hard to kind of problem solve or think creatively. And you find that like, you almost feel like you can't think because you're, you're so singular in, in how your brain's operating. Um, and then it also starts to kind of shut down some other things. So you might, um, you might not feel hungry mm. or you might feel like you have a bit of an upset stomach because digestion is slowed. Um, so those are kind of like, it governs sort of those, uh, I would say in a nutshell, if we're talking, what is stress reactivity? I would say the, um, the fight or flight response, the magnitude and the time course of that fight or flight response and all of the signaling aspects that govern that fight or flight response um, that an individual experiences. Cool. So it becomes important, obviously, because we know stress is important for health. Yeah. So if you have two people experiencing the same objective experience, but are like completely different in how they're physiologically experiencing it, then you can imagine kind of like the implications for that for their health and well-being as it relates to stress is obviously way different between those two people. Yeah, totally. In an era when the burnout statistics are crazy, you know, I think that a lot of people are feeling super stressed. And so understanding stress and how we react and how we might change that is obviously pretty important, I think. Yeah, for sure. And I think like, because there's this like perceived element and an imagined aspect to things that like, um, our psychology really does play a role in whether something is stressful or not. Mm -hmm. um, so that kind of cognitive framing piece, obviously some things like, so for instance, I'm writing my thesis and I had like three weeks to write my thesis. It almost doesn't matter who you are or like what coping mechanisms you have, like that's going to be stressful. Yeah. You have a very short period of time to get a whole lot of work done. I think a lot of people can probably relate to that. So there's no kind of like, you know, cognitive framing yourself out of that's just reality. Right. But the way that you um, manage it, uh, the way that you kind of interact with it can, can alter how, how successful you are in actually like getting that work done and not letting stress um, impact your performance um, and kind of using it more as an enabler, um, as well as keeping sort of the, the wolves at bay as far as like staying healthy through that. Um, so you can, you can, you know, there are, there are some things that like stress, I don't like minimizing it. I don't want to make it sound like it's, it's just in your head. Cause it's obviously like, I, I think in this day and age, everybody has to wear so many hats and do so many things at once that um, it's almost inevitable that we're going to feel stress. Mm -hmm. So then that kind of management piece comes into play either as far as like, how do I cut, how do I recognize what those pieces are? That's really kind of pushing me over the edge and, and start to maybe say no to those things. Or if, if I'm in a position where I can't say no to those things, at least for a particular period of time, 
how do I adopt some other coping aspects to um, to be able to kind of maintain the performance and and stay healthy and um, minimize the long term impact of that stress on my health and well being in the long run. Got it. And so is that the resilience piece then, the ability to handle it, manage it, bounce back from it, and all those sorts of things? So how does that play into it? So we've got kind of two things. You've got resilience, which um, our, our kind of understanding of, um, of physiological resilience or psychological resilience comes from physics, where um, it's the ability or the property of some material to be able to be deformed and then go back to its original structure, right? Hmm. So, um, so that's kind of like where resilience comes from. So by definition, for someone to demonstrate resilience, they have to experience some kind of adversity. So they have to experience some kind of challenge that kind of takes them out of that original shape and requires the opportunity to, to then come back to that original shape. So resilience, when we think about it, um, both physiologically and psychologically, is the ability to experience stress or adversity of some kind. Um, and once that's kind of the, the stimulus or whatever's causing the stress or challenge has been dealt with, that we're able to go back to that kind of like pre-stress form that we were. The other thing though, and probably what's more interesting and important, um, if we're gonna use stress to our advantage is, is um, kind of the post-stress growth. So in the way that um, we're talking about exercise and that like the adaptation to exercise, that exercise needs to be stressful. Like you're not gonna get a whole lot fitter if you're, if you're walking or running at the same pace for the same distance every single day. Yeah. You need to make it a little bit more stressful. So that means we need to keep kind of ratcheting it up to get that same kind of um, training response. Obviously, if we overdo it, we get into overtraining and burnout. Mm -hmm. um, and we've kind of pushed ourselves too far. So stress in the same way, um, if we think about the growth that can occur by virtue of kind of like we've taken on something. So if you imagine like a new job, first day, stressful. Um, second day, probably still stressful. Um, the, the novelty aspect, um, so like new people, new role, um, new context, those things are stressful. Um, but we do that, we learn it, it now becomes a part of our comfort zone, our comfort zone grows a little bit. Um, those things are no longer stressful anymore. So we've grown a bit so that we've changed kind of the like line in the sand on what causes the stress. So uh, one, of the, one of my favorite um, TED Talks was um, Adam Creek, who you mm. brought in to yeah, talk. Yeah, he's actually uh, funny. I'm interviewing him in, in an hour, so. Oh, awesome. Yeah. He was, so his TED Talk on seeking failure. Mm. And he's got one slide that he puts up, which is so great around like your comfort zone um, and then like where the growth happens. So what is your potential? Um, and I think the way that I envision stress is like stress lives, I think constructive stress lives between your comfort zone and your potential. So you will inevitably feel stress when you're doing, you know, new things that, that are pushing you or when you've um, taken on um, enough things that you're something that's like more challenging at work or something. Um, maybe you've been used to like Olympic distance tries and you're going to do an Ironman, something that that first time you do it, that first kind of leap mm -hmm. outside of your comfort zone is that's stress. The challenge exceeds your coping resources, but 
if you engage with it in a positive way and it's like a constructive experience, then it actually moves the needle on what your comfort zone is. Mm -hmm. um, but the, that period of growth is kind of the discomfort part. Yeah. But for us to, to kind of keep expanding the comfort zone, um, we have to experience stress. So it's like, you know, I think a life without stress is, um, is not what we're shooting for, but it's like managing it. Interesting. Is there anything that you do now, having learned all of this stuff to manage your own stress better? Like how, like how has this changed you? Are there any tactics that you use now to, to cope, to deal, to prepare? Like what has changed for you or, or what have you learned or what, what do you think other people might benefit from in terms of like pure tactics that can help them to deal with stress a little bit better and manage it and be more resilient. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, I would also, I will qualify with this with like, I am most certainly not perfect. I've been in the grocery store with like a heart rate of 160 and being like, why is, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why is this happening? Why do I feel like this? Yeah. So I'm like not whatsoever immune to it, but um, my, so one of the things I think is like making good habits. Hmm. So we spend, I don't know, I think it's something like 80% of our day in habits or something like that. Yeah. It's where we go. Um, it's a path of least resistance kind of thing, right? It's what we default to. So trying to instill habits that like when we default to the path of least resistance, that those things are good. So when I get really stressed, when I'm super busy, I default to, um, to making my lunch every day. Mm to make sure I get um, at least an hour of exercise. And I try to, as much as possible, get like um, some kind of active transport in. I'm lucky because I can walk to work. Um, so I have those times where I've kind of like almost structured into my day or scheduled into my day um, time that is um, a little bit of recovery time, even though like I'm walking, so it's doing something. And there's also like the the kind of stress reducing elements of actually walking. So it's actually a, a productive use of time, but for my brain, it kind of feels like a rest. Um, so habits, exercise, um, I generally will like, I'm like a bit regimented about going to sleep mm -hmm. uh, by like 1030 if I'm super busy. I also am just one of those people, like I'm not a night owl. So I can't really speak to like the people who are more effective at night. I'm way more effective from like 6am to 11am. So if I'm super busy, I'm up at six. Um, I probably crank out as much work as I can until 11. That's usually when I'll take either a break to walk to a new place to continue to work, or that's maybe when I'm going to take an hour of exercise. Um, I try as much as possible to do that exercise outdoors if I can. So like I love trail running or hiking, mm -hmm. um, or maybe like go for a road bike or something like that. Um, so I think those things are kind of like my mainstays. Um, some things that I've been trying to get better at, I've like, I'm horrible at actually doing the mindfulness and meditation. Um, I put it in my calendar and I just don't do it. So I've started just replacing like one or two days a week instead of doing the strength workout, I'll go do yoga cool. and I get there early. So I have to have 15 minutes where I'm just lying on my mat. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've like kind of tricked myself into doing it. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing that I've been trying to get better at, which um, I, I like chronically take on way too many things. Um, 
and I have very high standards for myself. So I like, I don't want to let anything um, basically slip under like a 95% of excellent. Um, and even 95% I don't really love. So um, I've tried to be a bit more, um, I guess, deliberate about like what I'm saying yes to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then trying to kind of push away the FOMO of saying no to some things. Um, because I find like when I, when I finally do say no to something and I have a little bit more space, it's like, like makes such a huge difference for, um, for how, um, I feel in terms of like stress or anxiety that like sometimes, sometimes the management is just like, it's just not enough. And you have to actually go back to like, I've taken on too many things or I have too much going on, um, or finding some other way of like reducing what the stimulus is. So I would say like on the one hand habits, obviously like nutrition, um, exercise, sleep. I'm not great at drinking water. I'm not great with the mindfulness, but I've kind of tricked myself into it. Um, but then on the other side, like being really aware of, of what is actually causing you stress and then taking a bit of a management approach from that side of like, okay, can I like cut some of this down? Um, can I delegate some of this? Can I, um, can I create some efficiencies in how I'm doing these things? Um, and then I think also I'm trying also not great at this. It doesn't come to me easily um, of just like slowing, slowing down. <laughs> Cause you can probably hear even just in how I talk that I do everything yeah. kind of a mile a minute. Um, so yeah. Th- and that kind of, that's again on a bit of the like management side of like, you don't, you don't need to program every hour from when you wake up till when you go to sleep. Um, and it's like quite okay to have some dead time. And when there's dead time, there's actually time to be a bit slower about, you know, you don't have to like walk jog home from work to be able to get to your workout on time kind of stuff. Right. What's got your attention right now? What are you learning about? What, um, who are you following any books or podcasts or anything that's sparking your thinking at the moment? Yeah, it's way out of left field though. So super. Um, <laughs> uh, so I work uh, like in the nonprofit sector. I've worked in the nonprofit sector in support for development for like the last three years. Now I'm more general um, working for a funding agency for nonprofit. So I see kind of all kinds of different things, but um, all of it is around like how do you make the world a better place? Um, so I'm. I'm like a bit of a news junkie in reading the news, which is probably why I focus so much on like, how do you make the world a better place when you read all the bad news? Right. Um, so lately I've been reading a book called uh, Winners Take All. And it's about how in the philanthropic world, um, you basically have this system where like, if you think about who philanthropists are, they're people who have done really well in the current systems. Those same current systems are kind of what create the issues that those people then donate money to. Okay. So you have kind of this like, um, I don't know, it's a, it's a bit of a paradox between like our philanthropists, like, and, and I'm like one of them, I, I, am, I do like, well, I've done well in this system. I'm, you know, like have a lot of privilege and I've benefited from it. Um, and, and so then I spend, you know, a lot of my time thinking, how do I, how do I make the world a better place? Um, 
And so obviously one of those things is either I donate time or I donate money. So this book is basically like talking about like, is that the right way to do it? Or is that actually keeping some of these systems alive that are causing these issues in the first place? Hmm. And are we maybe just doing that so that we can like kind of have our cake and eat it too, as far as like, um, you know, you can continue to benefit from these systems, but so long as you're kind of giving crumbs back, you feel like you're doing your part. Anyway, it's really, I love things that really change how I think about something. And this is one that's like really made me question, you know, my whole life, but um, <laughs> pretty much everything, but it's good. But that's um, a good yeah. book. If it's making you question everything, that's what you want, right? You yeah, want to question your assumptions and never assume that you're right or that your, your approach is, is, you know, yeah. um, the only way to do it. So you know what, awesome. another good one on that same note yeah. of like changing minds, um, was, and most people, well, I don't know about most people, but Daniel Kahneman, who is like, renowned uh, behavioral economist, won the Nobel Prize um, in economics, I don't know how long ago, maybe like a decade ago. Um, so he wrote a book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It's kind mm -hmm. of about, um, you know, the, it sort of forms the basis of behavioral economics of like the biases that we have um, and how we approach things. It's heavy. But Michael Lewis wrote a book about that book called The Undoing Project. And it's like much more digestible. Okay. Um, but still kind of gives you the Coles notes. And it's another one that like really changed how I think about things and how I view um, or how I like, like it, it like levels up your self-awareness of, mm. of being a bit more aware of like what biases you're kind of operating with. It's a good one. Very cool. What's one thing that you would recommend someone in the audience listening to this podcast do or try or implement or add to their lives? You know, anything that you think might be a little thing that they can do that might spark their lives and just make things a little bit better. Walk on the sunny side of the street. That's it. Okay. Just when you're walking somewhere, just find the sunny side of the street. Yeah. You can just kind of turn everything into a game. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's, it's one of my favorite things when there's a sunny day, especially in a city. Right. Yeah. You just go chase sunshine. Awesome. Jill, I know you're busy. You got to get back to it. Thanks for taking the time out of your crazy day. Congrats on all the amazing things you've done and really appreciate you sharing your infinite wisdom with us. How can people get in touch with you if they want to ask you or connect with you, uh, ask you questions or connect with you? Um, you can email me, um, jillianwhite018 at gmail.com or uh, find me on um, Instagram at jillydubs or uh, Twitter at uh, the real Jill Nye. Nice. Jill, thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Greg. Bye. All right, everyone. I hope that you enjoyed that. Thanks for listening in. If you made it this far in the show, you learned a ton about stress, stress reactivity, how the body handles stress and what we can do about it. I know that can make a massive difference for you in your day-to-day -day life. So if you enjoyed the show, please give us a review on iTunes. We would incredibly uh, really appreciate that one. Ping me on social at Dr. Greg Wells. Let me know what you thought. And if you can hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to, that would also be just absolutely fantastic. So thanks so much for listening in. We really appreciate it. We hope that that was helpful for you. Certainly was for me. Love digging into all of that stuff. Physiology, as you can tell, is a passion for both uh, Dr. White and myself. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again really, really soon.